This is Heather Meckes, Director of Discipleship at CRC, and this is our podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope this inspires you, encourages you, and allows you to see how God is moving in and around you. If you would like to check out more resources, go to coopersvillereform.com. Enjoy the message. Well, welcome. I'm Pastor John. Uh, Before we get into the Word of God this morning, would you pray with me? Father, we want to worship you this morning. Father, we want our hearts to be drawn to you in a deeper way this morning. We pray as we have sung sung songs that have been centered around you, around Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Father, we pray that you were pleased with that. And Father, as we dig into your word in a very controversial text, Father, we pray that you would give us clarity, that you would give us wisdom through your Holy Spirit, and that you would guide us to navigate well in this text so that we can know you more and also live like you in a more God-honoring way. Father, we love you and we thank you. It's in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. Have you ever been in a season of your life uh, where you were left asking Where is God? Have you ever been in a season of your life when when you have been left asking, where is God in all of this? Maybe you're in that season now. Maybe you're in a season now where God seems distant, where God doesn't seem as near as maybe he once was. Maybe for you, God has never seemed near. Maybe he's always been this distant figure to you, just checking on things and maybe pops in on occasions and uh, you can see him all over the Bible, but we just don't see him that way in our lives, in our little world here. Maybe that's how you feel. Well, this week we're going to be starting a new series in the book of, of Esther. Um, over the centuries, the, the Christian church Uh, really hasn't known what to do with this book after Nehemiah and before Job. It's right there sandwiched after Nehemiah and right before Job. But we we really haven't figured this one out, especially early on. And I would say like much of life, we still don't have it figured out, nor will we ever have it completely figured out. But uh, this book actually did not have a commentary until some 700 years after the launch of the Christian church. John Calvin, uh, even though he has written great and numerous commentaries, uh, does not have a commentary on the book of Esther. And the great reformer, Martin Luther, uh, believed that this was a horrible book that should not be in the canon of Scripture in our Old Testament. And so there's a lot of debate circulating in the scholarly world around this book that we're going to dive in. And so when I hear debate and I hear things circulate, I'm thinking, we should probably check it out. <laughs> we should, that'd be a good time for us to study. Thank you, Lord. Um, because at the end of the day, I approach the scripture, and, and I pray you as scholars as well, would approach the scripture uh, understanding that, yes, even though God is not mentioned once in this, in this book, Yes, even though prayer and worship 
are not mentioned once in this book. And yes, as the great commentary, uh, the commentary from Vernon McGee suggests that God's not mentioned, worship isn't mentioned, no pronoun even related to God is mentioned. However, the horrible, selfish King Xerxes is mentioned some 192 times in it. Yes, even though all of that is true, I believe God's word is sharp, that God's word penetrates, and that even when it seems like he is absent, he's not absent. So for whatever reason, I believe in the Lord's sovereignty, he has allowed this book to remain in the canon. This narrative, this historical narrative of Esther, he's allowed it to remain in the canon of scripture that we hold in our hands today. And I believe he did so for a reason. And so we're gonna dive in it this morning the events of Esther occurred between 483 BC and 473 BC. So there's this decade long period that we're going to be diving into this morning. During the first half of the reign of King Xerxes, and this was some 100 years after the Babylonian exile of the Israelites from their land. So Esther belongs to the period after the Babylonian exile when Persia had uh, displaced or removed Babylon from this world powerhouse. Now Persia was this world powerhouse. It was the Persian empire that was running things. Some Jews at this time returned back to Jerusalem. Nehemiah would be one of them who returned back to Jerusalem. But many Jews actually remained in the capital, uh, the Persian capital, Susa. And some of those Jews are who we're gonna read about this morning, namely Esther and Mordecai. And we really won't get into Esther or Mordecai this morning, uh, but we will be reading about them in the coming weeks. These Jews seemed content to stay in Susa, uh, the capital city of Persia, in, in which this story is all set out. So while the story is certainly about Israel's deliverance from death and extinction, it equally reveals the imperfect circumstances and the imperfect people God uses to fulfill his plans. That's what this book is all about. That's the crux of this book, that there's madness, there's mess, there's chaos all around in a, in really what is a mess of a city, a mess of a reign from King Xerxes, who we'll learn a little bit about today. However, God is still working in the madness, even when he seems distant, even when he doesn't seem, he doesn't even seem like he's there. He's not even mentioned. Worship of his name isn't mentioned, but God is certainly present. Thus, Esther is a message of hope and grace, even in times when God seems distant. And I pray that would be our takeaway this morning. Before we jump in um, to the text, uh, we'll, we'll, I just wanna go over four key characters. So there's really four key characters. There's many more characters, but four. One, Esther, um, Esther's one. Her Jewish name would be Hadassah, uh, but we call her Esther because that's her Persian name, and Esther means star. 
And then we have Mordecai, who is this older cousin of Esther, who actually ends up being the guardian for Esther because we know that Esther's parents had passed away sometime before the story was set. Um, they assume that Esther may have been around 18 years old. She was most likely a teenager, maybe even a little younger than that during this time. Here's a map of the Persian Empire. You can see the border there. Um, it, it's very comparable to the size of the United States. And so within that, there's 127 provinces, regions, that King Xerxes was reigning over. And King Xerxes is our third character, who's a key and important character and the element of this book in this historical narrative. And King Xerxes is really portrayed as this king um, who, who is really just all about himself. He's all about his glory. He's all about his reign. And then there's this fourth uh, character um, in this story called Haman. And we won't see Haman yet this morning, but Haman is a Persian official who works closely in conjunction with King Xerxes. And he's really portrayed as this cunning villain throughout the book of Esther. And so what you must understand uh, when, when we look at books of the Bible, uh, we can't really approach every book the same. Uh, God had created it uh, through the working of his spirit, through men who had written the text. God had created them to write in different types of genres. And so we have historical books like the one we're reading today. So Esther is simply an historical story, a historical narrative, just telling it like it is. And then we have wisdom literature in songs and poems. And, and that's like Job. And, and that's like Psalms in Song of Solomon. Get alone with your bride and read that one. Um, and, and so we have that. And, and then we have the gospel narrative. And then we have letters. And then we have apocalyptic texts, which have to be uh, really looked at very carefully. But God, in his foreknowledge, God, in his providence, uh, didn't have this book that was just written so plainly and clearly that we can just take verses and put them on bulletins and everything else. So our, our uh, administrator was like, hey, what? What verse do you want me to put on the cover of the bulletin, Pastor John? And I was like, ooh, Esther 1? Not, none of them. Uh, I don't want any of these verses on the cover of the bulletin because really, it, that's not what it's about. We're reading a story here, and I can't give three or four or five verses to really depict the story, so I'm saying, choose something that you want that you feel like when I send you my sermon goes with the sermon. So that's why if you're like, why is Ephesians 2 on the cover of the bulletin? That's why, because we're gonna read a story here and there's not two, three, or four verses that really make a good synopsis for this. So without further ado, uh, we took the long way around the cul-de-sac. Let's get into Esther 1. If you're in your Bibles, uh, somewhere midway through or so, the Old Testament, it's right after Nehemiah, right before Job. Uh, if you're at Psalms, you've gone too far. If you're at First or Second Chronicles, you gotta keep going right. And if you don't have a Bible and you wanna follow along, we'd encourage you to. There's a Bible somewhere in front of you, a blue hardback. And if you do not own one or you just really like that one, you can take it home with you, it's yours. Here's what the Word of God says, Esther 1, 1 through 8. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. 
The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Midia, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, six months, what a party. He displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. Verse five, when these days were over, the king gave a banquet, so the separate banquet, lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. So the 180 days were for the movers and shakers, the, the, the princes, the nobles, and, and have you. And then the seven days were for everyone to party. Verse six, the garden had hangings. We get this explanation of what it looked like. So we get these word pictures in our mind. For those of you who are very artistic like my bride, uh, th this will be good for you. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen, fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions, open bar status here, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he had wished. We have feasting in these first eight verses. King Xerxes really knows how to throw a party. He knows how to throw a shindig, okay? He hosts this beautiful feast, and in the Hebrew here, it's this word mishta, which just points to this like really elegant, elegant, beautiful feast that was thrown. For the most influential in his kingdom, I used air quotes for kingdom, nobles, officials, military leaders, princes of Persia and Midia and all the movers and shakers of that time in that region were present. And so after this 180 day feast, this half a year long feast where the king displayed, according to the author here, the vast wealth of his kingdom in the splendor and glory of his majesty. They, didn't, they then hold a seven day banquet for everyone, for those lowest on the totem pole to the highest ranking officials. So we have 187 days of feasting, of partying. And just through the depiction that we have from the author of Esther, who we do not know who it is. We do not know who wrote Esther. Doesn't King Xerxes sound a bit full of himself? Doesn't that seem like the picture that's being painted here? 
Xerxes was anywhere between, I've read commentaries who differ on opinion here, anywhere between maybe 18 years old. I think some of you parents have young men who are about 18 years old. You wouldn't have them serve over 127 provinces. You barely let them use the microwave. Um, so it could be 18 years old, maybe all the way up until some may say mid-30s would probably be the oldest that Xerxes was at this time. He, he really inherited this position from his father who he succeeded after he passed away. So after the half-year feast, they then put on this seven-day party in the enclosed garden of his palace. And, and this party would put Hugh Hefner in the play, Playboy Mansion to shame. I mean, they were drinking out of goblets of gold. In each cup, it says, was different from the other, which means they were all handmade. They were sitting on gold and silver couches. Porphyry, I don't even, I didn't get into the study of all of that and what that all meant, but there was this beautiful depiction, the vast wealth of King Xerxes' glory was all on display while Xerxes is sitting in his royal palace and on his royal throne, soaking it all in. They weren't drinking the wine that you get out of the box from Walmart either. I, I was walking uh, actually in Meyer uh, Friday uh, looking to actually get some, some drinks and stuff for, uh, for a gathering that we were having later that night. And uh, I was walking by and I walked by the boxed wine and I thought Xerxes would be ashamed of such garbage. <laughs> and I just kept moving on, got to the White Claws. And, uh, There's unlimited access to this wine, which means when, when their cup was just a quarter full, the, the wine servants would come and fill them up. There were no restrictions, according the word says, to the king's liberality, which means he was just letting people live it up, live free, die young, enjoy the 187-day feast while you have it. It's on me. I'm flipping the bill. The empire must be running pretty well at this time, you would assume, right? You, you wouldn't have uh, this kind of a feast. You wouldn't have this kind of a banquet if you were in times of war and distress. So we can assume just by looking at everything that things were running pretty well here in Persia. And then I read another commentary who, who said, actually, it's very likely that Xerxes put this banquet on so that he could gather the who's who of Persia and all the military leaders and the princes and the nobles to gather them to kind of up the morale because they were gonna go and invade Greece. And, and history seems to match up with that timeline as well. And so I guess there is no such thing as a free feast. So there could have been reasons why he would have even had this type of feast from the very beginning, but how many of us know that alcohol in abundance mixed with self-absorption and a 187-day party full of people-pleasers usually does not go well. 
Some of you have stories of over-consuming alcohol or maybe a mother or father who wrestled with that or a grandparent or a cousin or a brother or an uncle or an aunt who wrestled with overconsumption, And they lived in this for six plus months. And it was a celebration. And at one point, my journey in high school, I just thought life was a party too. I can remember, and I'm ashamed to say this, but I boast in my Lord that this is not who I am today, but I can remember chugging beers and crashing the can over my forehead with, with my other bros, you know, in circles in high school, floating with people who were fools, and I was one of them. And I might have been the chief of them. But then I met Jesus. And, and he revealed to me that that's not life. That life is in him. And he showed me where true happiness and satisfaction and where true thrill was. And it wasn't in a drink or a drug or a position of authority. It was found in him, in a relationship with him. I didn't know what a real party was until I started living for Jesus. This is way better than any party that Xerxes could throw. This is the life. This is a party. On the surface, all of that stuff seems like a blast, but when you find out what's behind it all, behind the curtain, and the Lord opens your eyes and he reveals it to you. You realize it's all misery, it's emptiness, it's brokenness, it's foolishness, it's people pulling from broken cisterns when there's a living well right near them, one call away. And when you say yes to Jesus, the true party has just begun. You're invited to the greater feast with the greater king. We'll get into a little more of that. Let's keep reading. Esther 1, verses nine through 12, reads like this, Queen Vashti. So Queen Vashti is obviously um, the king's wife. Also, she also gave a, a, a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. So you have the men in one area and the women in another area of the palace. On the seventh day when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, that's another way of, fancy way, and not as intimidating of a way of saying he was drunk. He was in high spirits from wine. He commanded the seven eunuchs. Eunuchs are men who served Xerxes and they were men um, who were castrated. So, so they, they once had a dream. Um, and then it didn't work out well. Um, and these men served Xerxes, and we have their names. Uh, Mehuman, or Mehuman, Abista, Harbona, Bigtha, Agaptha, Zethar, and Karkas. Um, and it's so funny, I was at a guy's night uh, about three weeks ago, and they decided at the end of Genesis to give me the long Hebrew names and they think I'm smart or something. I'm like, guys, I just speak them quickly and confidently. No one knows how to pronunciate them. So just say them really quick and confident. And if you use a bit of an accent, people even think that's better. So sometimes I'll pull that off. 
to bring before them. So they bring these seven eunuchs in. They bring before uh, these seven eunuchs before uh, Queen Vashti, who is wearing her royal crown. They're asking, uh, would you go before the king and wear your royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and he burned with anger. So it goes from feasting to furious. Really quick here. How many of us husbands can attest to the, the adage, happy wife, happy life? Or for uh, King Xerxes, it would be happy queen, happy king but Xerxes is too busy um, focusing on what others are going to think of him. And so when he calls in his drunken mess of a mind, when he calls the eunuchs to call his wife from her gathering, he is calling them to really parade her around what could have been one to 250,000 men, one to maybe 200 plus thousand men who were gathered and he is calling on his wife to come and parade around and be this little trophy gal. And she says, not happening, bro. Not doing it. And so these, I just imagine these poor eunuchs, you gotta get in their shoes for a minute. You know, they go like, yes, like, please say yes, please say yes. <sighs> King Xerxes, your highness would appreciate if you came in your royal crown and did a whatever with all the men and he's drunk, would you just say yes, no? Oh gosh. And then they go back and they go back to Xerxes. Uh, she said, sticketh. Uh, <laughs> No, you know, like, not doing it, boss. And now Xerxes uh, has a decision to make. He, he can try to take that as a grain of salt and laugh it off, or he can feel the need to have to save face in front of all of his cronies and those in the empire who are gathered around him. A couple of years ago, and this is embarrassing for me to share, but wouldn't be the first time. I, I was uh, at a New Year's gathering, Helen and I were, and uh, we went to this gathering with three other couples who were friends of ours, and somewhere in the gathering we were hanging out, and much like what happened here, kind of the men migrated towards the garage where we picked up a board game that we really liked called Settlers of Catan, and we migrated to the garage, and we put a table up and all of us, we may or may not have planned that, but all of a sudden we started playing this game while the ladies were in the living room just hanging out, talking about life, and I think watching uh, some television or a movie. And the game's pretty long, so 45 minutes in or so, my wife comes on this New Year's Eve night and she says, honey, I would, uh, I'm not feeling very well, I would like to go home. And being the gentleman that I am, I said, oh honey, here, can I give you the keys and I can get a ride from one of my buddies and maybe he can bring me home. You know, the night is still young. That didn't go well. Uh, <laughs> that did not go well at all. 
And uh, the look that she gave me in that moment, can you, can you give it? Don't, okay, don't, <laughs> don't, not now. Uh, was not good and I had to suck it up as she told me, sticketh. And, uh, <laughs> and I had to say, okay, um, looks like I'm out of this game, boys, and stand up and really just tell my guys, like, uh, I'll see you whenever I see you. Whenever I'm not grounded, uh, I will see you. And I was in the doghouse for about 24 hours, deservedly so, after that time. I learned a valuable lesson that night. When your wife says it's time to go, no, or just a little bit longer, babe, is not a valid option. So if you're taking notes, write that one down or tattoo it on wherever uh, is, is good for you to remember that. There's some schools of thought uh, about Vashti's refusal here to kind of uh, show off in front of the king and his cronies and really much of the capital city of, of Persia. Uh, there's some schools of thought, and it's kind of crazy to say this, there's some arguments. Some believe that Vashti was wrong for saying no. And um, believe it or not, some believe that. And then there are many others who say, no, she did the right thing. She did actually a, a thing that elevates women herself as should be elevated. And she did the right thing by saying no. Because a lot of times men need to hear no from their wives. And um, I asked my wife this morning this question. I go, what do you think? There's this debate. And what do you think... Uh, do you think Vashti was wrong? And she just started laughing. Like, is that really a debate? Like, they should just ask women and stop trying to like figure everything out. Ladies, was Vashti wrong to refuse her husband uh, from prouncing around? Was Vashti wrong? Thank you. Okay, so these men who are supposedly scholars just need to ask their wives or a group of women uh, because they have the spirit of the Lord and they will tell you very clearly Vashti was not wrong. And men, sometimes, maybe oftentimes, we need to hear no as well. Our wives are not our trophies. They are not ones to be paraded around. Now you should be proud of them and you should be proud to be around them, but they are not to be a trophy around your arm. And if you are asking your wife to wear something that is maybe more sensual to show off to your buddies as you're hanging out, you are in sin. And if she says no, I would ask that she would say no, and I'd ask that she'd probably wear several layers just to tick you off <laughs> if that's what you're trying to do. Okay, so let's, uh, let's move forward. Esther 1, 13 through 15, then 19 through 21, and we're heading out. Um, says this, 
Since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matters of law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times. So instead of going to his wife and saying, uh, man, you really, you know, like, I'm sorry, I was drunk and I asked you to do something I should have never asked you to do, I'm sorry. No, what's he do? He goes to a bunch of people pleasers, some wise men who understood the times, the, the smartest of the smart in his area. It says, and they were closest to the king and there are all their names. The seven nobles of Persia and Midia who had special access to the king and were highest in the kingdom. So they're gathering here like, hey, what, what should we do? According to law, what must be done to Queen Vashti, he asked. She has not obeyed the command of King Xerxes that the eunuchs have taken to her. And then these Persians, uh, princes, and higher-ups in the area end up in the next three verses there. You'll see uh, they end up basically fearing what their wives may do to them if King Xerxes allows that to happen in front of some 100 to 200,000 plus men. And so they're all a little nervous. Oh no, our wives may do the same and we may not be able to lord over them as we have. And so here's what happens in verse 19. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree. That, that means it cannot be overturned or reversed. And let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. I have a feeling she wasn't very upset at that. She's like, great, hallelujah. Also, let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. Then when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all his vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. Verse 21 concludes, the king and his nobles were pleased with this advice, so the king did as Mamukan proposed. We have two systems that we can fall under in this life. The king then gathers a group of nobles, as we just read, to discuss what it is that he should do with Vashti. And the king's advisors essentially say she is a threat to the social structure of the society and the norms that we have taken on here. A strong woman is only a threat to a weak man. It's the reality. The king's advisors basically agree that she's a threat to the entire social structure, and so Vashti is uh, only a threat really to a petty, proud, and power-hungry king and the yes-man or the yes-men that he has surrounded himself with. The people closest to us should be the people who are willing to tell us the hardest truth. The people closest to us, do you have people around you that are willing to confront you in lies or in sin or when you live unbalanced in this life? Do you have people around you in this life who confront you in those things? I know for men in particular, we often don't. We often have other men who just kind of say, oh yeah, my wife's a trip too. Have another one and, and let's just talk about it have another one, have another one, and let's just wash our sorrows away and let's not confront the pride, the prejudice, the horrible things going on within our own heart and let's just 
have another one. Ladies, same thing can happen. Do you have women around you who are bold enough to tell you when you're wrong? Do you have women around you not to sit around and gossip and talk about how all your husbands are idiots and, and lazy and just jerks and everything else? No, but to sit around you and to say, hey, I think, I think you might be off on this one. See, King Xerxes here was surrounded by a bunch of yes men, people who were going to look out for his kingdom, his character to be elevated to a position that it should never be elevated. No man or woman should ever be elevated to that position. They were going to look out for him and their own social structure more than women. We see a major system at play here. King Xerxes is representing the world's system. The world system, that, that is to say the system that is run by the kingdom uh, of the power of the air, as Ephesians 2, 2 puts it, Satan, or the prince of the power of the air, as another version puts it in Ephesians 2, 2. This is a system that is run by Satan. The world system is a system that is, go figure, worldly. It's led by the flesh and human nature, and it's empowered and encouraged by Satan. It doesn't cause you to do what you don't wanna do. That's the trick in all of this, the world system. It causes you to do what you already love to do, and it says, do it more. This is the system at play here. This is the Xerxes system that is still alive and well today, that is run and ruled by Satan. Have your way, enjoy it, indulge. Whatever your moral compass says is what is right. That's it. You call the shots, you sit on the throne, you make the decisions for your life. Don't listen to a book, don't listen to a God, don't listen to family, friends, counsel. You make the decision. This is the world system. And people have bought into it hook, line, and sinker. Consume as much alcohol and food as you want. You track your own moral compass. Men, women. Women are just objects of your fantasies, your perverted fantasies. Why not? So maybe you don't live like this at home, but maybe you're locked in with a computer at home. And you just use women and objectify them on your laptop, computer, smartphone as objects of your own fantasy. That's Xerxes' system, adopted by Satan. That's Satan's system, rather, adopted by Xerxes. Xerxes allowed it, and so does Satan. As long as you're an obedient citizen of the king and you don't step out of line, it's fair game in Xerxes' kingdom, and it's fair game in Satan's kingdom. You need to know it's a trap. Xerxes will always say yes to whatever the fallen mind can think of. Satan will always say yes. He'll always co-sign it. As long as it is against God's design and God's will, Satan will co-sign it. He'll write the edict up for you and deliver it to you hot off the press and he'll give you comfort in your heart about it. 
but don't buy into it. My question this morning is, are you enslaved to the world system? Are you enslaved to the world system? It causes you to think you're calling the shots. It causes you to think you're independent, but that type of independence is actually bondage, the word of God says. First John chapter two, verses 15 through 17. The apostle late in age, John writes this, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, we see all three of those lusts at play here in Esther chapter one, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Xerxes passes away. The will of Satan will pass away. The lies of Satan will pass away. But it is only the will of God that will live eternally, forever. True freedom is found in Christ. And then Paul puts it this way in Galatians chapter four, verses six and seven. He says, and because we are his children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father. Now you are no longer a slave, but God's own child. And since you are his child, God has made you his heir. But the problem is we want the position. We want to be prioritized. We want to be lifted up and exalted and high and haughty. We want the position. Just like Xerxes and his cronies under him, vying for political gain and worldly gain. They wanted the position. But Jesus flips it on his head, on its head and he says, look, the, the greatest among you will become the least among you. The greatest among you will become the servant of all. That's the position. And he says, in that, then you will be an heir of God whose throne will reign forever. And he's not giving up his throne. We make crummy gods. We are horrible gods. When we put our husband on that throne, our wife on that throne, our children on that throne, the president on that throne, when we put people who are not created to be on that throne and we put them on that throne, they let us down 100% of the time because we make crummy gods. Jesus is on that throne. We bow to him and we serve him. We're not on that throne. Families are not on that throne. Our president is not on that throne. Our Jesus is on that throne. And that's who we answer to. So here at the end of chapter one, King Xerxes finds himself without a queen, full of himself, and he's drunk 
off of his own pride, literally and figuratively speaking. Next week, we'll see how Esther becomes inserted into this Persian palace. How did this Jewish woman get inserted into all of this? We'll find that out next week, and I'm excited for how we'll discover God who seems hidden, yet he is providentially fulfilling his kingdom purposes throughout what seems to be a situation where he is completely absent. But we will find out, I believe, through a careful reading of this text, that he is not absent at all. And I want you to know, in your life too, he is not absent. Even though he may feel absent or distant, he's not absent. Seek him, for you will find him. Let us pray. Father God, the, the kings, the kingdoms, the rulers of this world will all come crashing down someday. And the things that we put our hope in, and the things that we elevate to levels that were not created for man or woman, will all come crashing down. They will all eventually let us down, but God, you will never let us down. And when we find that order, when we find that place, we find rest. And so Father, I, I pray as we examine uh, the throne of our own hearts, and as we come before your table this morning in Holy Communion, I pray, Father, that we would examine ourselves and that we would see who is seated at the throne, at the citadel of our own heart, at the center of our own heart. Who is that? And Father, I pray that you would lead us to repentance if it's not you. And I thank you, God, for your grace and your mercy and your kindness and your compassion, the fact that you are slow to anger and you're abounding in steadfast love. I thank you and I worship you in that. And Father, as we come before you, I pray, Father, that you would fill our hearts with love, joy, and peace all through your Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.